Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Amity. And I'm Laura. Let's get started. So today we're super excited to start To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. How are you feeling so far? I love this book. I really do. Do I say that about every single book? Yeah, but that's okay. Probably. I am, I've never read it before and I am pleasantly surprised by like how wonderful of an experience it's been so far. Like this, it's so enjoyable, isn't it? And it yeah. really does draw you in. It's very engrossing. The story has a good pace. There's parts that are really funny. There's parts that are very endearing. There's parts that just are really sweet and also difficult parts. There's parts that address the South in this period in history. And I had forgotten about was some of the harsh and not so nice words that are in this book. But I think that she's trying to keep it true to culture and accepted norms of the times in Alabama. Okay. So To Kill a Mockingbird was written by Harper Lee. And I wrote down just a few little things about her that I found so she was born in 1926 which is interesting to me because that would be like right how like right in how old my grandparents were so yeah same. my grandpa was born in 27 and my grand one of my grandmas was born in 1923 and my grandma that was born in 1923 was born in arkansas i think okay i was trying to think well, she lived in mississippi but she was born in arkansas and then they moved yeah. there so kind of the same culture i guess so she was born in Monroeville, Alabama, which they say is a town that's similar to Maycomb, which is where okay. Mockingbird is set. And yes. her father was also a lawyer. I'm sure everybody knows this, but one of her childhood friends was Truman Capote. They think that Dill in the book is based on him. Oh, kind of. how fun. Okay. Yeah. Isn't it? Don't you love that though? Like it really does seem like the very best books are the ones that are based on somebody's real life experience. It sounds like she designed Maycomb after the place where she grew up. Her dad was a lawyer. She's familiar yeah. with that territory. She has a friend that she based the character on. She knows what she's writing about. It comes off really, really well. Yeah, a lot of times I think things, I mean, well, this next thing too, they, they take things from their lives and things that happen, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I guess in, unless you're writing fantasy and you're like totally building your own world, a lot of what we write and make up comes from our life experience but yeah. in yeah. 1931 so when she was five years old um nine young black men were accused of raping two white women in alabama and five of them received these really long prison sentences and as time went on it became more and more clear that these women were lying so they kind of wonder if this is where she got the idea and then she began writing To Kill a Mockingbird in the mid-1950s, and she finished it in 1957. It was published in 1960, and that was, like, just before the peak of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I thought was interesting is, like, this is really her only book that she wrote and was published, like, in her lifetime. She yeah. wrote some, like, articles, I think, after this, but it has really stood the test of time. So that's kind of amazing. It is amazing. There's another book that I think it was published post-mortem. But yeah, that's all for her to really have just one book and for this to be that book. Yeah. That, that's pretty epic. They published uh, Go Set a Watchman after her death, Okay, but it wasn't finished. And a yeah. lot of people say that it just isn't. I mean, I don't think she ever intended for it to be published in that state. I'm sure. I'm sure if it wasn't finished, then she herself was probably like, okay, this is just rough draft. A lot of people say it's not, it's not near as well-written as To Kill a Mockingbird. So yeah. And this one is just so well-written. Like there's so many sentences that I just down to the sentences and her little word choices in these that I'm like, oh my gosh, she's a genius. All right. You ready to Anything dive else? in? Yes, I think so. The chapters do not have names. They just have chapter numbers. And this is part one. But I actually wanted to begin with a quote that is the, in the beginning of the book, right before part one. It's kind of hilarious. It's by Charles Lamb. And it says, lawyers, I suppose, were children once. I love it because 
I think in a lot of ways, Jem and Scout look at their dad and he is, he's this very gentlemanly, very intelligent, well-read man, very good man. And I don't know that they could ever imagine him being a child. They absolutely respect him as a grown adult, as their father. I just don't know that they could ever see him as a child, but. What do you think of them calling him Atticus? I think that's really interesting. And I can't remember if they ever address that in the book, but I don't, I don't know that they do. I think for them, that's just who he is. And it's still respectful. And it's such a name that, I don't know, it kind of demands respect anyway. Like, I don't know. What do you think? When I'm reading it, I think of him as this like very, like he seems loving mm -hmm. and gentle. Yes. But do they not? I don't know. Like have them calling him by his first name makes me think they didn't think of him that way. I don't know. As loving and gentle? As they're like fatherly. That's just interesting. Well, there is a phrase in chapter one that I thought was really interesting. We lived on the main residential street in town, Atticus, Jem, and I, plus Calpurnia, our cook. Jem and I found our father satisfactory. He played with us, read to us, and treated us with courteous detachment. And so that is kind of interesting because he's very much hands-on. He's very aware of them, very, I mean, but he is also a single parent who's trying to work to provide for his family. But that phrase right there is is interesting, courteous detachment. I'm not sure how you combine that with the fact that he plays with them and reads with them and he's right there for them to talk to. And I wouldn't say he necessarily scolds them, but he knows what they're doing. He's not an aloof parent by by any means. So to me, courteous detachment means that he's very polite, but a little withdrawn, but it doesn't seem like he is. I see him as treating them kind of like adults. Well, that's true. He like, does. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that, I explained that right. I don't know. Like talks to them like they're adults. He explains yeah. things to them like, well, you should understand this. And I don't know. It's just interesting. But he does tell them what to do. I mean, he says yeah. stop he, doing that or. <laughs> yeah. And he, ex I mean, like he is a parental figure for sure. Like he is the parent. He expects them to obey him. And I think that they honor that. Yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. Anyways, I'm excited to read more and see if I can figure him out because I kind of like the way he parents them. I don't know. I yeah, I do too. I think that that's a, that's a good observation that he kind of treats them like adults. I mean, there can be a fine line, like children are not miniature adults, so should, we shouldn't treat them in that way. But, but he talks to them with respect. He doesn't talk to them like they're dumb. And he also talks to them in such a way as if he has expectations, like, and to elevate their understanding. So he's going to speak to them in some of his lawyer speak, his lawyer language. And hopefully through context, they figure out what he's saying. And in that way, I think that's why they are really smart kids. Like, yeah, we're going to talk about how Scout has been reading, they think she's been reading since the day she was born. And a lot of that is just because it's not that Atticus is a super demanding parent. It's just that he like, what do I want to say? He just has expectations that they're going to rise to the occasion. They're going to rise to challenges. They're, they're going to do things. There's not a doubt in his mind that they're capable. He sort of has confidence in their competence. Uh, chapter one is where we get introduced to everybody. And this is told in first person. It's from Scout's point of view. For, so for the first uh, couple of chapters, we actually don't know her name. Other than that, at some point, they call her Jean Louise. And that is her full name. But she goes by Scout, which is so cute. I actually have a niece whose real name is Scout not short for something it's just adorable and it just fits her really well so this is scout finch and her brother jem whose full name is jeremy oh my gosh i just forgot it is it jeremy atticus finch yeah so i think his name is jeremy atticus finch and finch and he goes by jem this is one of those sort of writer's tools where the author in the first paragraph or two jumps to the end and then goes back to the beginning and she actually does that a little bit throughout the book. She'll like jump to the conclusion of a story and then fill you in on all the details. So she talks about how when Jem was nearly 13, he got his arm badly broken. And then, and we're going to find out how all that happened. Some, she has an opinion of how it happened and others have other opinions. But anyway, we find out that this family, the Finch family lives in Maycomb, Alabama. And 
they had originally like had some land, Finch Landing, but that's where Atticus's sister lives. He has a brother who's a very successful doctor. Atticus himself is a lawyer and his sister and her husband sit on the land at Finch's Landing, just actually like sitting there. They know like everybody in town. Uh, so in Maycomb, they're on the main street and they live there with their dad, Atticus, and also Calpurnia, who is, sounds like she is the live-in lady, help housekeeper, cooks all their food, and also kind of mothers them. She is a Black woman. And she, I mean, the children obey her and kind of fear her even more than their dad. She's been around since Jem was a baby, I think. And their mother died when Scout was just, I think, two years old. And so Scout doesn't have any memory of her, but Jem does. And every once in a while, he gets really sad and he misses their mom. But we don't hear much about her at all, at least in this first part. And so Jem is about four years older than Scout, but they're just like the best of friends and they do everything together. So it's summertime when this starts out and Dill has just come. And that's also not his full name. He just goes by Dill. He's from Mississippi and he's come to make him for the summer and they become friends. And the way that he introduces himself is that he knows how to read. And they're like, so? And that's when Jem says, well, Scout's been reading since she was born. And Dill's like, well, if you have anything you need read, I can read it for you. Anyway, he's just this goofy little boy who tells the tallest tales. He's lying all the time. It becomes pretty clear he has no idea who his father is. They have a grand time together. They play lots of games together. But then Dill becomes very fascinated by the Radleys. The Radleys' house is not far from the Finch's house. And there are about a million stories woven about Boo Radley. Some years back when Boo was just a teenager and his name is actually Arthur, he had gotten in with the only gang in town, which was not really even a gang. It was just these teenagers. They like caused a little bit of trouble. It was like, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, not that big of a deal. But there was a guy who decided to make a big deal out of it. And so the court ruling was that all these boys would be sent to this industrial school. And Boo Radley's dad was like, no, 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 I'll, I'll keep him at home. You know, I don't want him to go to that school. Well, it turns out that everybody that went to that school went on to be very successful. That would have been the best thing for him. They all did really well. But he ended up just being like shut in his house all day, every day. And he went kind of crazy. There's a story that he stabbed his dad's leg with scissors. Now, I'm not totally sure if that's actually true or if this is another fanciful thing that people have just put together. For one reason or another, they he was put into the sheriff's basement and kept there. They said maybe he would need to go to a psych ward. His dad was like, no, no, no. Again, said, I'll keep him in the back house. And I think it just means like the back of their house. And so that's what he did for years. And he's been there for many, many years. Like lots of people had never even seen him before. They just knew he was there. Some people speculated that he had died and that his parents stuffed him up the chimney. So that's neat. So yeah, he never comes out, right? No, he never comes out. Nobody has seen him. At least that's what the children say. That's, And also, of course, there's a town gossip, as there is in every town, but especially in, ta- in, in small towns. And her name is Stephanie. Stephanie Crawford. Miss Stephanie Crawford. This kind of reminds yeah. me of the Burbs. Like, you remember that movie? Oh, with isn't that Abby's? a movie? Yeah, where oh. they're like the creepy family in that house on the street and they never come out. That's, I forgot about them. I've never actually seen it, but I remember hearing a lot about it when it came out. That's it's like they funny. have this mysterious boy stuck up in their attic or something and he never comes out. I mean, it's just creepy. It is kind of creepy because who knows what the actual backstory is, but one way or the other, there is a young man who's now almost a middle-aged man living in this house and nobody's seen it. Yeah. But one thing that we do know though, is that Calpurnia who they say she doesn't usually give her opinions on the ways of white people. But she said Mr. Radley was like the worst man who ever lived. So Jem gives Dill a description of Boo. He says, Boo is about six and a half feet tall, judging by his tracks. 
He dined on raw squirrels and any cats he could catch. That's why his hands were bloodstained. If you ate an animal raw, you could never wash the blood off. There was a long, jagged scar that ran across his face. What teeth he had were yellow and rotten. His eyes popped and he drooled most of the time. So they had all turned him into a zombie in their mind, basically. These children are absolutely terrified of the Radley house in general. But at the end of the chapter, Dill dares Jem to go up and touch the Radley's house. And Jem has never said no to a dare. And so he does, he runs like the wind and he goes up and he slaps the house and then he runs back. And it just says that we thought we saw an inside shutter move, flick, a tiny, almost invisible movement. And the house was still. There's our little introduction. We've got this family. We've got the Radleys. We've also heard a couple of other names that are going to come into play later. We've heard about the Cunninghams and the Yules that I didn't really talk about them very much, but all these people are going to come into play. Yeah. I'm like, as I'm reading this, okay, so we're going to cover the first eight chapters and I feel like stuff has happened, but like, I'm not quite sure where the story is going to go and like how the Radleys are going to fit into this. They must, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a slow build. We've read a lot of books that are kind of a slow build. This one is is so good because she has so much story happening the entire time, even though you've got this underlying story that's slowly, slowly building as well. Yeah, you've got interesting things coming, going yeah. along all the time. Yeah. It got, got me right away. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. I'm interested. All right, so chapter two. So now it's September and I guess Dill, he must just come and stay with like a grandma or something, right? Every summer. And so he comes for the summers and then he goes back to Mississippi. So he leaves because summer is over. Scout is excited to start school. I loved this. Her teacher is horrible. Miss Fisher is like a horrible teacher that doesn't understand children and like is intolerant. And is, did they say she was really beautiful though? Yeah, she was really pretty. So I sometimes I don't know if I'm getting confused with other books. Anyways, but. I swear. So yeah. And obviously Jem has a little crush, but the thing is too, though, like, I think it's pretty typical for the time, her method of teaching. It was like, well, oh no, we need to unteach you. Or, I mean, think about all the kids who were left-handed and it was like, no, you don't write with your left hand. You only write with your right hand and we'll stunt your learning if you keep trying to write with your left hand. And there's just a lot. In yeah. fact, quick side story that just kind of has to do with this. So my great grandma came over here from Scotland. And so as you can imagine, you know, the Scottish accents, extremely thick, very, very thick. And then my grandma was born here. We we're talking about the twenties. She was born in like, I think 1924 or something. So she starts school in 1930 ish in Ohio with a very thick Scottish accent. Now, she was born in America, but her, I think both of her parents were Scottish, were they? Anyway, at least her mother was. And so she had a thick Scottish accent as a little girl. And so she was in so much trouble at school. They would like make her stand up in front of the class and make fun of her and talk about how she was a dunce and she was stupid because she spoke with a Scottish accent. She didn't speak proper American English. So Miss Fisher is beautiful and young. She must have just became a teacher and I think she's not very educated like it seems like in those times like or well or maybe they even said that that teachers were like barely educated above what they were teaching or that's I think maybe. so yeah I think that's probably true I mean not first grade but you know okay so she doesn't seem to be able to handle the kids very well scout comes to school already knowing how to read and write because you know, remember Jem said that she basically was born reading and once the teacher realizes this, she determines that her father must have taught her to read. And he, of course, had done it all wrong. And so she's going to have to undo it all and reteach her how to read, which is absolutely impossible. Like yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. Unteach somebody how to read. So they go home for, they must go home for lunch. Scout complained then to Jem about what her teacher had said. And He's kind of just like, well, she went, she just learned this new teaching method. And is this why you're saying that she he must have a little crush on her or does it come out? Yeah. Well, there's a point where he sees her and he just like blushes or, or something. But he's like backing her up. He's like, I think she just learned a new teaching method. Just it's fine. You know, and Scout's just annoyed. And we do kind of get the idea that Scout is a little bit more of like a spitfire than Jem is. Yes, for sure. I mean, yeah. he's the oldest child. 
she's both second and youngest child. So, yeah, lethal combination. Yeah, you got to watch out for those second children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, at least mine. The afternoon also does not go well. Walter Cunningham is a boy that's in Scout's class, and he had not brought a lunch to school. But the teacher is like, oh, okay, well, I'll give you a quarter and you can go get lunch, but then you can just pay me back tomorrow. Scout knows about Walter's family and she knows about him because they had been clients of her father's and they had had to pay him with things like uh, it said hickory nuts, turnip greens and other things. So it had been explained to her that they didn't have money and they never would. And so this is just how her father had to accept payment. And so Scout, she knows about Walter's family. She knows that he's never going to be able to pay this teacher back or he's never going to be able to bring a lunch to school either. And so when she tries to explain all of this to the teacher, she gets called up to the front of the class and her teacher slaps her hand with a ruler. That must have been like a total surprise to her because it sounds like her father is not like not strict, not violent, not abusive. He's very no. respectful of them. And so she was probably shocked when this happens. When she goes up to the front of the class, she has no idea what's going to happen. He's yeah. Give me your hand. And she's like, what are you doing? She thought that they were going to spit into it or something. That was the only reason yeah. you put your hand out like that. <laughs> spit and make an agreement or something. But yeah. So her first day of school does not go well. And I think it sounds like probably the rest of the year is not going to go well either. But yeah. She just kind of tough. And the other interesting thing I did it say in this chapter that, I mean, the way she learned to read was just her dad would read and she'd kind of sit on his lap. I don't think he really taught her anything. She just kind of picked it up. And I think it was kind of like Calpurnia. I love that. Yeah. Calpurnia taught her how to write because it was like a way to keep her out of her hair. And so Calpurnia would like write something in script, it sounds like, because it was so she's writing in cursive. So Calpurnia would write something and she'd be like, hey, you need to copy that perfectly. And if she didn't copy it perfectly, nothing would happen. But if she did copy it perfectly, then she would get an open-faced sandwich of bread and butter and sugar. And she's like, in Calpurnia's teaching, there was no sentimentality. I seldom pleased her and she seldom rewarded me. It was just like, well, that didn't measure up. Or, okay, that one did. Just very straightforward. None of this medals for trying. <laughs> yeah. Calpurnia but as a result, very... she knew how to write. Calpurnia is not very motherly like nurturing she's just like you're in my hair here do this yeah it's like she does a lot of good things actually um but and teaches her a lot of good things it's not in a very like soft nurturing way but i can't imagine going to school well i mean i didn't go to school knowing how to read but i did go to school i feel like knowing a lot more than the other kids and mm -hmm. so it was very boring charlie did the same thing I remember oh, okay. taking him to school and I was like, he was one of like him and one other kid could read when he went into kindergarten. And I was now don't, this does not in any way reflect on my parenting because my second child went to school, not knowing any letters. So I don't know why he could read, but I just remember being like, oh, he knows how to read and nobody else in here does. And, you know, and he got into trouble a lot, like in first grade, because he was so bored. And he just like started wandering around the classroom, like, you guys are boring me to death. Yeah. And then what are you supposed to do? Like, what are you supposed to do? Did the teachers call you in and stuff? Yeah, they had him on like a sticker chart plan. It was his first grade teacher, I guess kindergarten teacher kept him busy and it was fine. Yeah. But his first grade teacher, it was our first year and she oh. just didn't know what to do. And so there were two kids. One with a behavior problem that had a sticker chart and Charlie. I'm not really sure. Like, I think he just would get up and like, he was just bored. So in second grade, we put him in a Spanish immersion school and that took care of that. Oh, good. Okay. Well, it's funny. I was talking to this guy at the gym yesterday and he was talking about how he has this three-year-old and he just started in preschool and he's like, you know, he knows Spanish and he knows English and he knows ASL. And his teacher called us the other day and was like, I'm worried about your kid. And he's like, okay. And so like they went in and talked to her and she's like, well, he just already knows so much. I'm worried he's going to be really bored. Okay. Like, <laughs> what are we supposed Because he's like, we can't like skip a grade or something. Plus he's three. So first of all, I'd be like, well, 
he doesn't need to go to preschool. Keep him home and keep challenging him. Good grief. You guys are the you guys are the ones who taught him Spanish, English, and ASL. Keep teaching him. Good grief. Yeah. You know? Don't stunt his growth by putting him in a preschool where they're not going to challenge him. They're like, ooh, colors. And like, and he's like, I speak three languages, but okay. <laughs> oh. He goes to preschool. And I speak three languages. So <laughs> I know. good luck. Oh, that's very funny I know yeah I'm like mm. I think if your kid is that advanced preschool is probably not the place for them honestly if they're that advanced they're doing something right at home just let them keep on going at home yeah I don't I mean my problems weren't that extensive <laughs> he could read three letter words when he went into kindergarten <laughs> that's that's pretty good the whole debacle with Walter Cunningham, it's not like Scout wanted to say anything anyway. It was like everybody expected her to say something just because she and Miss Caroline had already had some back and forth. And so the other kids were like, you can talk because you've already talked. So you tell her about Walter. Everybody knew about Walter, that he wasn't going to take something he couldn't pay back and he would never be able to pay back. And he didn't have lunch. And so she did kind of stand up for in a way, just be like, well, he's a Cunningham. You should know what that means. Don't you know? <laughs> Don't you know? Yeah, exactly. It ends up getting her in trouble, like you said. And so chapter three finds us finds a scout rubbing Walter's face in the dirt because she's mad. <laughs> she got in trouble for trying to stand up for him. So Jem comes across as like, knock it off. And he really is his father's son. Like you can see he has, he's very diplomatic. He's very level-headed and he's like, knock it off. And Walter, why don't you come home with us and have lunch? And again, you know, Walter is very hesitant because he doesn't want to take something. He, he can't pay back. They're like, just come have lunch with us. And so he does. And it's really sweet because they lay out this whole spread for him. He asks if there's any molasses in the house. Calpurnia gives it to him and he takes the jug of molasses and he pours it over his entire plate, over everything, the meat and the vegetables and, and all that. And Scout is just, I just love her. She, she would probably have poured it into his milk glass had I not asked what the Sam Hill he was doing. <laughs> and then he suddenly became really self-conscious. And so she's like, oh, oops. And so Atticus is like trying to reprimand her. And she's like, he's gone and drowned his dinner syrup he's poured it all over and that's when calporn calperny's like in the kitchen now and she says i'm going to give this direct quote because i thought it was so great she says don't matter who they are anybody sets foot in this house is your company and don't you let me catch you remarking on their ways like you was so high and mighty your folks might be better than the cunninghams but it don't count for nothing the way you're disgracing them if you can't act fit to eat at the table you can just sit here and eat in the kitchen and I love that on so many levels. Maybe I'll finish the summary and then I'll come back to this bit. I think it's an important lesson for life. Scout feels very ashamed and she feels bad. But of course, she's angry at California just because she had gotten in trouble. But they go back to school after lunch and there's a run-in with one of the Yule boys. His name is Burris. And he's evidently at least in fourth grade, still sitting in the first grade classroom. And he doesn't even know like what his actual name is because Miss Caroline has a Yule on her role, but it's not Burris. She's like, how do you spell it? He's like, I don't know. She's like, I, I have a Yule on here, but it's that's not the name. He's like, well, I don't know. That's what everybody calls me at home. He has no idea what his real name is. And it's sort of the Yule way that they go to school on the first day of school and then they never come back. And so he's repeated the first grade, who knows how many times. And the school superintendent, like she feels like she's done her job just by saying, okay, you guys have to go to school. They go the first day. And then she's like, okay, I don't even want to bother with them. He's pretty disgusting. He's very, very dirty. He's got cooties, literal cooties crawling out of his hair. And Miss Caroline, she's just obviously from out of town. She doesn't know their ways. She doesn't know the people. And she just doesn't understand. There's sort of this, this method that everybody and this code that everybody understands. And she doesn't get it. In fact, she tells him, please bathe yourself before you come back tomorrow. He's like, I'm not coming back. You know, <laughs> in fact, I'm leaving right now. So... I love how the other kids are like, those cooties aren't going to hurt you, but you're going to give them to the other kids. So yeah, you got to take care of this. Scout did not have a great day, but when she got home, Calperny actually gave her a kiss and she told Atticus everything that happened during the day and especially about how 
her teacher had gotten after her for knowing how to read. And he's like, all right, listen, you keep going to school and we'll still keep reading together. And so, and they do, they, they read together and that's a big part of, of why she knows how to read. But something interesting, and this is, again, sort of a small town thing, talks about how the Yules live by sort of a different set of rules. There are the laws and the rules that common people have to live by. If they break those laws, they're in trouble, right? The Yules are different. Mr. Bob Ewell, Burst's father, was permitted to hunt and trap out of season. Anybody else would be arrested if they did that, but everybody in the town knows that his children would starve if he didn't because he blew all of his money on, like, drink, I think. It says the Ewells were members of an exclusive society made up of Ewells. Certain circumstances, the common folk judiciously allowed them certain privileges by the simple method of becoming blind to some of the Ewells' activities, like not having to go to school, like, you know, he can hunt at any time. Even though that would be a misdemeanor or a felony for anybody else, he can do it because otherwise his children are going to starve. It's his fault. He blows any money that he does have. But everybody's like, all right, well, this is just what's going to happen. And they don't want to punish the kids for it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that was basically the entire chapter. At the end, he just talks about what a compromise is. And and their compromise is that if she keeps going to school, he will keep reading with her. No, I just love the little exchange about the cooties. And how she saw one and she's like, it's a lot. Everybody in the classroom's like, you never seen a cootie before? (laughs) Oh, and she's like, go home and wash yourself with this and don't come back. And he's like, I'm not coming back. It just, I also thought it was interesting that like the superintendent thought she'd done her job by like, all she needed to do was get his name on the roll. And then that was it. But then again, they live by different rules. And doesn't he like work at home? It sounds like it. Or if he works, I mean... I mean, he helps at home or something. And that's how Burris. Yeah. Yes. That's why they need him at home. But it's just interesting that in this time, there were like a different set of rules for people. They were allowed to do stuff like that. You know, like if you wanted to pull your kids out of school, you could. For sure. Well, and Walter for sure is that way. Like he's older. I think he's Jim's age, but he's in scouts class because it was exactly that. It's not that his parents wanted to keep him out of school, but they needed his help at home until there was another sibling who could was old enough to take over. That's and so, I, get, I was, and so then he was able to go to school. And so you know, you have the Cunninghams who are very poor, doing the best that they can. They're not going to take something they can't repay. They'll repay the best that they can. Sometimes that means a sack of potatoes, but working so hard, doing the best they can. And then you have the Yules who are just take advantage of every part of the system, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. And like, I mean, I know my grandma who was lives in, lived in Mississippi, her father was educated and he thought it didn't help him any. And so mm-hmm. none of the kids got to go past the first grade. Oh, jeez, It's interesting that they could do that. It is. Yeah. And it didn't and... help me any. So he was not a very nice man. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> His mom died when, like, when he was like 21 days old or something like that. And then, oh, wow. He was like raised by his grandma and aunts. And I guess the aunts were like horrible. So I don't know. So interesting. Dang. Dang. It is really interesting. And just kind of the harsh way of life in a lot of those areas. And so people were, yes, the very harsh. Very different. Yeah. So, I think so. And it still is. David says that he lived in Mississippi for two years and he says they're 20 years behind us. That's crazy. Yeah. He's like, you go there and you're like, are we in America? I'm not sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, With like the projects and people live in literal shacks. All right. So chapter four. So through the rest of the school year, Scout is still just frustrated because schoolwork is just not challenging for her at all. It sounds like they just hold up cards, like flashcards all the time or something. And she's like, I can read and write. This is ridiculous. So after school one day while she's passing by the Radley place. And I love that in the book, it it capitalizes Radley and place. Like, yeah, the house is like a thing. The whole thing is a proper noun. Yes. She sees some tin foil sticking out of a knot hole in one of their oak trees, the, the Radley's oak trees. And so she reaches into the tree and she finds these two pieces of gum. And I think this is really mean, though. She chews both of them. And then she goes and tells her brother about it. I'm like, this is like back to the, 
share and share alike in the Moffats, right? I'm pretty sure somebody had left that there for them and it was for them, not for her. But then he freaks out and he's like, spit it out because anything that comes from the Radley's house is like, don't they have like, was it nuts that fall over the fence? Yeah, pecans. Yes. Everybody has pecans tree, pecan trees, but if the pecans fall from the Radley's house into the schoolyard, those were poison. You don't touch those. They, they would just pile up. He tells her, spit it out right now. On the last day of school, they find an old Indian head penny. Find two of them, two Indian head pennies in this knot hole. And they kind of were like, at first, I think, isn't it the pennies that they leave in there to see if they get taken for a couple of days? And then um, when they, or is it something else? It's something else a little bit later. Oh, is it? Okay. But they take those, right? The Indian mm-hmm. head pennies. So they decide yeah. to keep those. And school ends and Dill then comes back to make them because it's summer. And so one day they play games together all summer long. They must just, it's like he's one of their siblings. One day they're rolling each other inside of this old tire. And when it's Scout's turn, she rolls out in front of the Radley steps. And then of course, Jem and Dill, like, freak out about this but then this kind of gives Jem an idea he's like let's play boo radley i mean i remember doing this as a kid like playing pretend games like you were somebody like you were a different family or like i don't know yeah yeah totally we would kind of do this with like our cousins and stuff so this game called boo radley would like get more and more elaborate as the summer goes on and pretty soon they're like putting on these like elaborate plays of the Radley family. Atticus kind of catches them and he asks like, are you playing? Like, does this have anything to do with the Radleys? And Jem's like, nope, it doesn't. Atticus is like, okay. So he kind of goes back into the house and now the kids are worried about their game that they're playing. I mean, he lied and he told them they weren't doing it, but now it's kind of like put this thought into him. Like, are we doing something? I don't know. Why do you think they're afraid? Just that they're going to get caught. How many times have we done something similar where we just start doing something, we just don't think anything of it, and then somebody draws attention to it, and we're like, oh, maybe this isn't okay. We just hadn't thought about it yet. And so now they realize it really isn't okay because Atticus drew attention to it, and now they're really thinking about it going, yeah, this is actually not okay. I don't know, because they're kind of making them into sort of these crazy villain people, right? Yeah, like what if somebody overheard them or if the Radleys heard it? I don't know. Not look good on them, I guess. Yeah. So this is the beginning of their like finding things in the knot hole of this tree, which will end. When she chews the gum, he's like, don't eat things you find, Scout. How many times do we tell kids that? You found it where? And it's in your mouth? Yeah. What part of you thought that was going to be a good idea? So we get introduced to Miss Maudie Atkinson in chapter five. Well, first of all, we find out that Dill is like in love with Scout and asks her to marry him. And he's she's the only girl he would ever love. And and then he would just totally ignore her. So very typical little boys, whatever. The boys, they're kind of getting to the age where they they do play with Scout a lot, but they also like to go off together and like do their boy things, whatever. And so Scout finds herself sitting with Miss Maudie Atkinson a lot on her front porch. And Miss Maudie is just this delightful lady. She's a widow. I don't know how old she is, but she loves her garden. She loves all the things outside and she makes the best cakes in the neighborhood. And she is just awesome with Jem and Scout. She treats them, again, like they're people, not like they're annoying little children or something. And so she and uh, Scout are having this conversation and Scout says, do you think Boo Radley's still alive? She's like, his name is Arthur and he is alive. And she says, I know he's alive because I haven't seen him carried out yet. So it turns out that Miss Maudie and Atticus have known each other for a very long time. They like grew up together and Atticus is old. Uh, I don't know if he's his older brother, but his brother, Jack, like every time he comes to visit Atticus, he yells across the street and is like, Maudie, come on over here and marry you, marry me, you know. She always tells him no. She says, call a little louder, Jack Finch, and they'll hear you at the post office. I haven't heard you yet. Anyway, I really like her. She's very sassy. <laughs> anyway, they talk for just a minute about being Baptist and how some Baptists think that she's evil, first of all, because she's a woman, second of all, because she should be spending more time inside studying her Bible than outside growing her flowers. So anyway, Scout asks her about the rumors that go around about the Radleys. And she's like, do you think they're true? And Miss Maudie says, no, 
I don't basically. So after this conversation, Scout finds out from Jem and Dill that they want to give a note to Boo Radley. And their plan is to to write this note. And they're asking him real politely to come out sometimes and tell us what he does in there. We said we wouldn't hurt him and we'd buy him an ice cream. So there's an inducement to come out if ever there was one. Their plan is to put this note on the end of a fishing pole and kind of put it into the window of the house. They keep trying to do that. It doesn't work out very well. And and uh, it, like not at all. And Dill was put on watch and he's supposed to ring a bell if anybody comes. And so Jem and Scout are working away at trying to put this note on the house. And all of a sudden they hear the bell just ringing and ringing. And they come face to face with Atticus. And he's like, what are you doing? And he's just a, you guys, you need to leave him alone. Stop tormenting that man. What Mr. Radley did was his own business. It might seem peculiar to us, but it did not seem peculiar to him. And then he, he says, had it never occurred to you that the civil way to communicate with another being was by the front door instead of a side window? Atticus, I mean, this is one of those moments where he's very firm with them and calls them out on their stuff. And they feel that to where Jem is like, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore, you know, but I'm sure that that's not true. He's just kind of feeling a little shamed, but it's in no way illogical. You know, it, he's not raving at them or anything. He's just like, okay, let's think about this, guys. This is not, it's, well, it's not kind. It's not, there's no etiquette here. This is not good manners and leave him alone. And I did kind of skip over this part in chapter three that is kind of well known from To Kill a Mockingbird. So you can't just skip it. Where Atticus says to Scout, if you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. And you find her that kind of sets things up for a lot of the story, a lot of situations they find themselves in. And you find Scout saying, I tried to do what Atticus said. I tried to climb in his skin and, and walk around in it for a while so I could understand what he was thinking and feeling. What a great sort of principle for life, to be careful how we treat people, especially until we've walked around in their skin for a little while. Yeah, like, can you see, I mean, it's the same thing as like walking in their shoes. I mean, it's just different. Yeah, exactly. It, but yeah, like, if you can just put yourself in their spot for a little bit, you might think about things differently. And the other thing is, is these people are, I don't know what's going to happen with them, but the Radleys are people who are just mysterious because they're kind of, or scary or creepy or whatever, just because they're like kind of unknown. Because they're not super open and, and out and about, and it says they don't go to church. And so everybody has, they're sort of a blank canvas, if you will. So everybody has filled that canvas with all kinds of nonsense. It's true. And I mean, we do that with people like that are secret, not secretive. That's not the right word, but like private. Yeah. And yeah. Not just more reserved and standoffish. Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And we can't fill in that void with outlandish tales and, and uh, suspicions. So. And it's funny too, because we totally, it's our natural inclination to do that. When somebody, I, I don't know, like Presley's teacher is leaving for two months and I'm like, mm -hmm. she didn't say why, you know? And so you're like, your brain needs to fill it in. It's like, she yeah, three is she, you know, a natural thing to want to it is. fill yeah. in information we don't have. So I, I really like Atticus. And I thought that the way he talked to them there was even just respectful and like, look, you know, we need to go to the front door. That's like, I mean, he's teaching them etiquette and like how to live as a decent human. Yeah. I feel like he sort of embodies the love and logic idea. Maybe that's what stands out to, I just really like reading his character. An excellent character. I want to be a parent like that. So in chapter six, then Jem and Dill have stopped playing the Boo Radley game until the last day that Dill is in town. And so they must be like, okay, we got to get it in one more time. <laughs> We've been good long enough. They decide then to sneak over to the Radleys and peek in through a loose shutter. And Scout goes with them. And as they're creeping around the house to look through the windows, they see the shadow of a man with a hat on. And that's when they, it must be nighttime, right? Because it's dark. Yeah, it that's is. when they run off 
And as they're running off, they hear a shotgun go off behind them. So the way to get out quickly is under a fence. And so they're kind of scrambling under the fence, but Jem's pants get caught on the fence and he has to leave them there to get out. I think it's funny because I think he forgot that he left his pants there. He was in such a hurry to get away. He probably just didn't realize at all. Oh, you think he didn't even know? Yeah, maybe he didn't know, but he's like, he just lets them go. So they escape. And when they get home, they see this gathering of adults in the neighborhood. So Atticus is there, Miss Maudie, Miss Stephanie Crawford, who is the neighborhood gossip. They're all standing there. And Miss Maudie tells them that Nathan Radley had shot at a black man in the yard or he'd shot up in the air to scare a black man. Miss Stephanie says that Mr. Radley is waiting outside with his gun so that he can shoot the next time he hears a sound. And he's not going to shoot up. Yeah, this time he's not going to go. It's not going to be up in the air. So this is when Atticus realizes. So the kids are walking up and Atticus realizes that Jem's pants are missing. So he's like, uh, where are your pants? Dill quickly answers that he had won Jem's pants in a game of strip poker, which I kind of think is funny because I don't. That's disturbing. Like, even... <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and so, like, how does this kid know about that? Good grief. Yeah, the strip poker. Maybe strip poker was different but what's funny is Atticus is more worried about that they were playing with cards that's his concern and he's like are you playing with cards and Jem's like no we're just playing with matches don't you know don't worry about it so then they kind of go home later that night I think it's like two in the morning and Jem's like getting up and he's like I'm gonna go get my pants and Scout's like you can't go by yourself and so does she end up going with him I don't remember no she just waits up for him yeah he just goes by himself. And then is it in the next chapter that it tells about the state of his pants? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I will stop there. So later that night. And I thought that was a funny exchange too, because they're worried that their dad's going to wake up in the middle of the night because sometimes he does. He'll wake up in the middle of the night, he'll go check on them and then he'll go read and go back to sleep. And so they're just worried that he's going to wake up and find Jem gone. But Jem's like, I need to go get my pants because they know my pants are missing. And if they find them, they're going to know it was us. Yeah. And they'll tell Atticus. And he's like, I've never been licked by Atticus, never been whipped. I don't want to start now. The cards thing. Was that something for you guys too? Or my parents just crazy? Like, no, but I do know families where it is a thing. But like my parents play poker a lot. I mean, gamble. We weren't supposed to like gamble, but like playing with cards was fine. But I do know families where it's a problem, like not a problem, but it's looked at as not okay. Yeah. In my family, it was like other cards were fine, but face cards were evil because apparently there were like symbols on the face cards that were evil. I think that over time, they've finally been like, okay, that's a load of bunk because I think that sometimes my parents play with face cards. But there'd be all these families around us, like, playing with face cards. And I'm like, oh, well, they're not good people because they're playing with face. See what that does to a child. Anyway. My parents, I I remember being, like, one time when I was a little kid, I wanted to take a deck of cards to church. And they were like, no, 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 no. So I don't know if it was, like, I don't know if they were, they understood what other people thought of them. And so, but we played with them at home. To this day, I don't really know, but I know whatever we don't we certainly don't gamble but do you let your kids play with face cards scum is not scum without face cards so yes i also remember like going down to the neighbor's house and playing the ouija board and when i got home my parents were like oh no never do that again so see that one i can see a little bit more because that one's a little bit i don't know what do you think yeah but i didn't know i was like yeah young and i was like i didn't understand but I do think, it, I always did think it was weird when families were, parents were like, we don't play with face cards. But I didn't understand that either. What is it called the satanic panic in the 90s, 80s, 90s? Where Probably what it was. Everything yeah. was considered satanic. Yeah, that makes sense. It probably did. Because it did seem like there were so many things like, oh, no, that's evil. Like that's the evil. Duggars weren't allowed to dance to music with a beat. Like a drum. Because... Oh, Oh, that was satanic. Oh, geez. We were at least allowed to dance, even though I wouldn't have wanted to. Not a dancer. No. Pretty much right after Jim has gone and gotten his pants and he's very moody. 
finally he confides in Scout that when he went back to get his pants, they were all folded neatly as if somebody knew he was coming back for them and where the tear was, it had been crudely stitched back together. So he's like, somebody did that. And he's just kind of like disturbed by it. Doesn't really know what to think. Also, they find in that knot hole in the tree, a ball of gray twine and Scout wants to take it. And Jim's like, no, she's like, I know that these are being left here for us. And he's like, okay, we'll leave it there for a few days. If nobody takes it, we'll take it. It's still there for a few days. So they take it. And then a while later, oh, also Scout has started second grade. So we've actually gone through a couple of summers and now we're into another school year too. Another time they find these little soap figurines in the knot hole. And it kind of freaks Scout out a little bit, but they realize somebody carved them and they are them. That's Gem and Scout. And so they're trying to figure out who would have done this. They can't begin to guess. But then they're like, well, pretty sure anything that's in here is for us and so they find like all these treasures there's like an entire package of chewing gum there's a metal and one time there's a pocket watch that wouldn't run on a chain with an aluminum knife and then they think you know what we should write a little thank you note to whoever's doing this and so they do they just say thank you sir we appreciate everything which you have put into the tree for us and they sign it gem finch and scout finch well not long after that, they see that their knot hole has been filled with cement. They see Nathan Radley and they're like, hey, you know, what happened to the tree? He's like, oh, the tree was dying. When a tree is dying, you fill it with cement. So they go to Atticus and they're like, is that tree dying? He's like, no, it looks really nice and alive and healthy. They said, well, Nathan Radley said it was dying, so he filled it with cement. He's like, well, I mean, I guess he knows his tree better than us. I think it really upsets Jem. It's very sad and kind of disturbing to him so that knot hole where they had left the note has now been filled with cement so of course we're going to infer that it was boo radley leaving things for them his brother nathan sees the note and is like uh no and so he fills the, the hole with cement and i don't remember if we talked about that how mr radley boo's father had actually passed away and so now his brother is there and he's the one like with an iron fist keeping boo inside the house and everything he's that was crazy. probably my fault but yes he died and they just said that nathan is just a replacement for him like he's just as awful yeah i was wondering i'm like are we gonna find out like but you're like you said i think we're, we're just, you're just supposed to know right that it was yeah you just kind of infer that that's what's happening and i mean they'll wrap everything up nicely with a pretty bow but for now we kind of figured that that's what happened this story is so interesting i'm just like I want to, I was listening to a podcast the other day. It's similar to ours, which I didn't know about until just recently. I didn't know about it. And so I was listening to the one about Rebecca and the lady was like, they do it like us where they break it up. And she's like, I couldn't stop. I just had to read the whole thing. And that's how I felt about this. I just want to finish it, which I could. Yeah. Yeah. You totally could. And it's, it is, it's so good. It's propulsive. I want to keep reading. Yeah. So the last chapter for today is chapter eight. And so I thought this was funny because we're like the whole country, I think is in the middle of this, like freezing cold, whatever. And everybody's getting snow and ice and we might even get snow tomorrow. So this was just kind of funny, but this, so this is the coldest winter that Maycomb has seen in years. It even snows a little bit, which it never had done before. The kids had never seen snow. And so they say, well, since I don't think it was really dangerous, but they were, like to go to school or whatever, but they closed school for the day because they readily thought the kids would want to stay home and play in the snow. Yeah. So they'd never seen it before. So Jim and Scout, I thought this was just hilarious. They're like transferring the snow from the neighbor's yard into theirs, like with baskets. Because <laughs> they're not very much. So they're like, is it Miss Maudie that says, yes, you can have as much snow as you can carry <laughs> to your house. It's totally fine. And I figured it's like them clearing the sidewalk or something like, yeah, like snow, it's fine. And is it their dad that's like, you, you're probably not going to be able to build a snowman or even he's like, there's probably not going to be enough for a snowball, but they're determined there isn't enough to make a snowman, but they did end up building one with dirt and then they just kind of cover it with snow. I thought that was very, I loved how the, the dad at the end was like, you know, if I ever thought you couldn't do anything, I'm wrong. You're going to figure it out. I love it. 
Who would have thought you could just make a snowman out of dirt and then cover it with snow and then it would look like a snowman. But the snowman ends up looking like Mr. Avery, who's a man who lives down the street. <laughs> it is hilarious. And Atticus is like, we can't be having like, what did he call it? A uh, uh, caricature. Yes. Um, you can't go around making caricatures of the neighbors. He's like, we got to do something. To... So he tells the kids to disguise him somehow. <laughs> I just think, wouldn't that be hilarious if you built snowmen, like, of your neighbors out in the front yard? That would, be funny. Uh, that would actually be awesome. They they take Miss Maudie's sun hat and put it on its head, and then they use some of her hedge clippers and put it in its hands, which I don't know how that disguised him, but I guess it did. So, and that night, Atticus wakes Scout up. Oh, it's supposed, like, it's supposed to be so cold. One thing that is that Capernia does is she, like, puts fires in every fireplace in the house because it's supposed mm-hmm. to be really cold. And yeah. was it her that he invites her to stay? And she's like, no, I'll probably be warmer at home because the ceilings in their house are so high. And mm, yeah, their yeah. house warm. She'd so be warmer at her house. Yeah, that's what she says. Yeah, it's going to be so cold that night. And so in the middle of the night, Atticus wakes Scout up and he has her put her bathrobe on and her coat. They go outside and Miss Maudie's house is on fire. This reminds me of my recent experience at the hotel. But the neighbors are trying to save her furniture. I'm like, don't you guys know when there's a fire, you're just supposed to get out and let it go. Don't try to go in and save the furniture. But then the fire truck arrives and that's the fire truck is able to stop it from spreading to the other houses. But her house does burn to the ground. Atticus told the kids to go stand in front of the Radley's house, right? And just don't move. Just stand there and don't move. And so they do. Throughout all this stuff that's going on through the night, someone had slipped a brown blanket over Scout's shoulders. Mm-hmm. But when Scout, uh, when Atticus asks her about it, she has no idea who put it on her. It's like she yeah. doesn't even realize, didn't even realize it was there. And he accuses them of like, hey, I told you guys to stay right here. And Jem's like, we did. We didn't move. We don't know where this came from. Jem then realizes it had been Boo Radley who had come out and put this blanket on her. This is at the point where he tells the whole story about the knot hole, the presents, his pants that had been sewn. Atticus tells them not to tell anybody. But then Scout says she feels like throwing up because, I mean, she's freaked out that Boo had been that close to her. I mean, if you were that scared of somebody, I can, I can only imagine. Right. So the next day, even though Miss Maudie's house had burned down, she's like cheerful as ever. <laughs> she's like, hey, this is better. Let me get it, build a new house. It's going to be smaller than my old one. I'm going to have a bigger yard. I can plant a bigger garden. I think she says she's going to get some like tenants. I'll get some renters in there with her. And she also mentions that she wishes she had been there when Boo Radley had put the blanket on the sky. Creepy. Is that a good cliffhanger for next week? I think so. Yeah. We, you know, because like you said, it's kind of a small build or yeah, a slow build. So we keep getting these little breadcrumbs, you know, that Boo Radley, they're very curious about him and he's very aware and curious about them as well. And he clearly comes out of his house. He clearly comes out of his house. Good stuff. Okay. So next week we'll be covering chapters nine through 14. I'm loving this. I'm excited. Yeah, it is so good. Feels so, I don't know. It'll be like another one of these important classics I can put under my belt. (laughs) Yep, check that one off because it, and you, you understand why it's a classic. It is so good. It's just, oh, yeah. My niece just read it. Uh, She's a freshman in high school and she she said she loved it. I was telling her about it this weekend. I was like, it's so good because I was, reading it on the way we drove up to Portland to see them and I was reading it and she's like yes I loved it it's great when you have a book like this that kids read for school and love it is because so often they just kind of get through them so they can pass their tests and whatever yeah so when they really love it that's that's pretty awesome and I do remember really enjoying it as well and that's what we need to do is have kids in high school reading classics that are this good because then they'll learn to love classics Learn to love classics and want to get into the ones that are a little bit harder and more complicated. Even though this one is a very, it's one you can have discussions on for hours and hours. So, which we're going to. So what are you reading? I want to hear about this. It's called The Orphan Keeper by Cameron Wright. It's really good. 
Okay. I'm like halfway through it. Um, it's uh, about a little Indian boy who is kidnapped and put into this like orphan home in India. And the idea of this orphan home is that they sell the kids to oh, like American couples who hmm. want to have a baby, but they're told the kids are like, were homeless or parentless or whatever. And so this little boy gets kidnapped and he keeps telling the people at the orphanage is like no i have parents so some another couple had like basically sold kidnapped him and then sold him to the people and then they're gonna yeah. sell him again for more money and he's like no i have parents and the man there tells him no your parents sold you like they needed money and so they sold oh, money goodness. anyways so he gets adopted to the united states and and it's just really interesting to hear, like, when he can finally communicate, he tells his mother in the United States, like, no, I have a mom, India. And so she's trying yeah. to figure that out. Like, she's trying to write to the home that he came from. And of course, they won't, react. they won't respond. And it's just interesting to, first of all, they tell the parents that he's three and he's like nine. Yeah. Oh like, my gosh. So they How get do you pull them. that off. They must be tiny. Well, they hadn't seen him yet. So when they see him, they're like, okay. oh, he's not oh, three. Okay. He's nine. Or, I mean, he's little. So he could they, he could have been like seven or eight. But they think he's like more like nine. But it's just really interesting to hear his situation. Like, it, it's a true story. His situation going to an American school and being made fun of and not understanding the language. And yeah. like the kids at the school teach him bad words. Mm. Like, tell him that he's been saying the teacher's name wrong and so they teach him how to say a naughty word and then he gets oh, trouble so anyways and then they're like he's just not understanding he's not learning how to read well yeah because he's from india and yeah anyway so it's really interesting i'm really liking it yeah that sounds really really good and is it based on i mean i imagine it's based on truth yeah yeah he said it in the beginning it said it was but it's like oh wait was that it is I think how about that you sounds really good and that's Cameron Wright mm -hmm. it's like C-A-M-R-O-N yes I've read some others by her that I remember really liking right now I can't remember what they are but okay so I'm going to share the one that I'm reading with my kids right now and it is actually Pocahontas I haven't talked about this one right okay so it's Pocahontas by Joseph Bruchak and we have I've shared a couple books by him because we've read several already this year by him he's sort of this very prolific writer of native american histories and so he does an excellent job and he brings because he has you know a very personal understanding of the culture and um, their traditions and it's really wonderful it's pocahontas and it's told like every other chapter one chapter will be from pocahontas's point of view the next chapter will be the story of the Virginia company from John Smith's point of view. And he takes like journal entries and, and things like that from members of that, that company and those ships. Yeah. It's just, I think probably as historically accurate as we can get. It's excellent. It's really, really good. What age do you think it's for? Um, I mean, I'm reading it to from eight years old to 14 years old. And yeah, it's not for like younger. I wouldn't say any younger than eight probably like middle grade then yeah I definitely say middle grade and I think I mean there's some of it that is quite wordy especially you know the stuff that's right from the journals and entries of the Englishmen I think Audrey she's able to understand it because we have read so much literature up to this point in her life I don't know that everybody would but even her like there's some things that I have to stop and explain what it is that they're saying I'd say in general probably like 10 to 15 but yeah, yeah. It's very, very good. I'm so jealous that you, your kids will sit and listen to you read that kind of stuff. And I just learned with Presley, I can't read her any books about snow or if there's snow in oh. them. Oh, how come? She's very picky because oh. she says it doesn't snow here enough. So she's mad about it. I'm okay. like, you're so ridiculous. <laughs> like, I had just checked out all these books about winter solstice and now I okay. can't read any of them okay. because <laughs> there's snow in them. That is really funny. Ah, kids could just be how I want them to be. Yeah. Seriously, if we could only, 
of course, then they probably wouldn't be as fantastic as they could be if they were exactly the way that we wanted them to be. I know. I just like, you think you're doing like, I'm like, oh my God, these, these books. And she's like, no, there's no one. <laughs> Who knew? That is really so funny. Yeah. Like, who would have guessed? She Sorry. did let me finish one last night and I kept saying, it might snow tomorrow. So can I just read this? Well, it's just frustrating. Funny girl. That's awesome though. I I love it. I want to read all the books. <laughs> I know. There's so many good ones. There are. That's why, I mean, really cutting out podcasts has helped so much. Mm. Yeah. I, don't, I listen to a news podcast every morning. I don't know. I might listen to like for in the future, I might listen to a couple, but like I really which which news podcast do you listen to? It's called the Mo News Podcast. It's M O News. It's really good. It's very like nonpartisan. Okay. It's just the news. That's what I want. Okay. And I love it. Cool. It's like they never make me mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they never like yeah. they do this fun thing at the end called um on this day, you know, like Oh, okay. It's just kind of fun. There's something that happened in history on this day or something like that. I really like it. I feel like hey, I will look at that going on in the world now. That's see, that's what I want. Not any kind of agenda. I mean, there's people who are interesting to listen to their opinion and stuff, but I want to just know what's going on. They don't really give opinions at oh. all. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, chapters 9 through 14. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first, or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.